Welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Welcome to Tent Talks. I am the Reverend Natasha Beckles. I am an Anglican priest within the Diocese of London. I am part of the Compassionate Communities team and I'm passionate about children and young people, about the intergenerational gift that is the local church. And I'm particularly interested in helping schools and churches work well together to spiritually, pastorally and practically help children and young people. In last week's episode of this series on interrupting serious youth violence, we framed the big picture of the series and spoke into the issues of birth and bereavement. This week, in episode two, we will be discussing education and belonging and hearing from educational thought leader, Rachel Clark. Last week, Lara and Natasha were talking about birth and bereavement, those big events that shape life and um, especially how kind of those those early years are so formative and some people are just not given the same chances as others and that you know the factors that lead, we were talking about youth violence obviously we we're talking about the um, London Diocese Lent Appeal challenging youth violence and what we're really trying to do is paint a picture of all the factors that feed into that and then erupt in violence when kids are getting to that sort of adolescent age. And so this week we're talking a little bit about education and especially belonging and how belonging is is such an important aspect of that. Yeah, why don't you join the dots up a little bit for us, Natasha? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So once we've got once you've got a child in from last week's session, we talked about how, you know, those traumas that affect the parent effectively affect the child. The child doesn't have Mm-hmm. an emotional state or psychology that's separate from their parents so whatever their parents mm-hmm. suffers they suffer too you know some at these points people can be it can find it really difficult to also focus on the little emotional recorder who mm-hmm. is a child and mm-hmm. over time that can end up with that child not being ready for school and that's what brings us to this week's discussion around education and belonging that if a child is already struggling, they, they, you know, they're not, their cup is not fully filled up. They're mm-hmm. used to routines that may include trauma that's not mm-hmm. of anybody's fault or trauma that is just because people didn't have the skills to deal with that. And we'll talk also about the role of the church in the future as well. And the fact that it takes more than a mum and a dad or however that somebody's family is made up to raise a child and you need that support around you and education is the first major institution apart from the hospital that a child will come across you know what that that culture of that institution is is critical so that's why we're here you know if you're coming from a secure home if you're coming from a place that feels very safe and secure and then you're coming into school and everything's new and different you're just you're a lot better equipped aren't you if you're coming from a place that, that doesn't feel safe, then then every other place you go is not going to feel safe. And then it's like it takes a lot more for that educational space to be a space of belonging, you know, to make it a place where a child feels like they can belong and, and feel comfortable. You know? What we know about attachment is that everybody needs um, a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs certain consistency for And so, you know, when you strip down the science of love to those aspects, you know, I I see that divine narrative in there. There are certain things. What what we mean by stable changes from one culture to another. But Mm. the fact that you have connection and consistent connection. So it's things like parent is present enough to be feeding child and look the child in the eyes because that eye contact and that interaction is really powerful. I think there's some studies on, you know, you can have a parent chatting to a child. They, they are just investigating what happens when a child, that, you know, the emotionality of the parent goes flat. And in that um, mm. experiment, the parent turns away and their face turns back flat, almost if they're depressed or whatever. And you quickly have that child starting to cry for help because they need that interaction. 
Now, if that hasn't happened for whatever reason, um, when you go into school, school can be, yes, a frightening place. Um, but for lots of, and, and it's important that a school is a very stable place and church needs to be like this as well, because people, mm. when people come into that space with trauma, the patterns mm. that go on help people to feel safe. Yeah. If, you know, things just jump around and, uh, you know, look, don't have that routine. We need that. You know, God made us mm. after he made the Garden of Eden, after he created all of these things, because he knows that we need that stability. It's, it's, it's intrinsic to who we are. So that school, rhythm, uh, that rhythm, rhythm yeah. you see it in the, the, the seasons, it's there. You know, we, we learn in a pattern. We have a year. We, you know, all of that works help us learn and grow and come to look around and learn things because of that stability that the seasons change at a particular time in the communities that we're in how a family grows or how we interact with each other and the fact that we're social creatures once that is organized and supported by the institutions of our culture and society or however our human society gathers together that works well. You can see that in indigenous nations. You can see that mm-hmm. in, in other communities. Those threads are part of what you need to allow any person to grow up. The issue comes about, and I think it's interesting, you know, maybe we jump into um, some of the scriptures that are there um, that we've been talking about. One of them is Ephesians 3, mm-hmm. um, which talks about we kneel because we all belong. Mm-hmm. And moves on to, you know, the depth, how deep and how wide and that we're rooted in Christ. And that, I think, is one of the most powerful statements about what it means to a kneel, that we are put, we're kneeling for that reason. And I say that again and again, because we've had it in the last year, a lot of conversations about what it means to kneel and mm. um, to be in unity and support about something. It's about belonging and allegiance to Christ. And mm-hmm. that story and where we have families for whatever reason feeling excluded. That's when we talk about the 99 and the one being separated mm-hmm. out. That mm-hmm. that journey is, is a challenge. I don't want to say to you that, you know, in the Bible, it says, you know, nothing good comes from Nazareth. There are these rough areas and challenging areas. And it's a misnomer to think that those communities don't have relationship. Often those relationships are stronger and deeper than in some of our wealthiest communities yeah, because, yeah. because of the need that they have, there's interdependency. And, yeah. and that means that maybe you did grow up sleeping in the same bed as your brother, but you've got deeper relationship than the person who lives up on the hill with a five bedroom house and the children don't speak to one another. So, mm. you know, there's isolation is possible in all situations what happens is that the economics can hide those mm. issues and those brokenness. And we do, we are seeing that, um, yeah. that brokenness affecting our young people because we've got groups from all economic backgrounds talking about yeah. mental health and anxiety and all of those things. But what happens for a child that has, you know, there's something called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And those are, you know, maybe 15 different possible experiences that can happen before a child is 18 and how mm. those strip down those additional defences that that child might have. Mm. And because you end up with that child, if we don't know that those situations have hap- happened and there's a lot of reasons people don't want to share that, they come into school and the, f- the only thing that we see is behaviour. And behaviour is yeah. actually a form of communication. So all behavior communicates something and we need to be people that see behavior and look behind it rather than judge and think that parent is a terrible parent. What's going on there? You know, we're quick to do that. And it's about understanding, you know, so education and pedagogy and practitioners, teachers, if, if you're called to, you know, that's your vocation. Your yeah. heart is for those things. You're interested in those things. You're thinking mm-hmm. about your curriculum, how it invites the child into that space, about how belonging is embedded in everything around the, the learning environment. You're thinking about the relationships. You're thinking about the opportunities for learning that you put before that child. And that helps the child to feel like this is my home too. And, yeah. you know, and the better a school is able to do that, 
you can cross all sorts. You can become what is called set secure base for a child, even mm. with a very chaotic home situation. But the, the, the challenge is when you've got schools that don't do that. Mm. And there's a number of reasons that schools might not be interested in doing that. And I want to take us to that whole narrative around the cleansing of the temple. And, you know, rather than seeing it as just, oh, Jesus is fixing the terrible things that are going on in um, Jewish society. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rather than looking at it just as the political aspects, let's think about the temple being a school. Well, it was a place of learning as well. Yeah, it was a place of learning, should be a place of praise and learning. And a school should be exactly that. But sometimes for particular reasons, that's not what happens. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we end up with people forgetting in the same way that actually the temple in Jerusalem was, was built around who Jesus was. It was, should have yeah. always been ready to receive him. Yeah. But actually yeah. when he came, it wasn't ready. It yeah. wasn't ready to hear what he had to say. Yeah. It wasn't ready to receive how he challenged the rules and regulations that had, had grown up around that. And when you've got a school that's not able to, and I'm not saying that we just, we're not chasing children around and eating food where they want to eat. No, but each child is precious and is teaching the organization something Yeah. If it, it, about gaps in its practice. And you can either look at that child as being a problem that you want to mm-hmm. get rid of. Mm. Or you can look at that child and think, are we the right people to support that situation? And if we are, what are we meant to be learning to make us better at supporting the needs of that particular child? You know, many times I I was fortunate to work in a a school where we were all very committed to that. And that meant that we worked very hard around children. Um, But we were also putting very clear boundaries in because you have to prepare them for the fact that they are going to go on to secondary school. I was working in primary. Yeah, yeah. Some so what happens in some places is that people go into a little bit of savior mode, which is really prevalent in all of the caring professions. professions. Yeah. But in terms of you're going into savior mode, really, where you're you're wanting to help and protect, and people are wrapping around to the point, but not putting in the right kind of boundary points that are there to help that child grow and learn. So we're not, so, so there's two extremes here. You can have the, the type of school or temple that as soon as they see the child that they were built for, mm-hmm. that actually you get, you are paid to look after, they want to just get rid of that problem child. That's, mm. that's killing Jesus in that situation. But then you also <laughs> get the other end of that, that doesn't want to take that child's challenges seriously and wants to just make it all right. Mm. And you're not helping that child because they're going to go on into other institutions with struggles. And if they don't have the relationship, that child will end up being excluded. And how that then feeds into this narrative around serious youth violence is that children end up out of school. As school is a, a protective factor. Yeah, but they, they, they can't they can't handle the school. They end up just... They, well, the sometimes emotionally, they, their experience is that they, they're not able, they're not well prepared for that. And, and we've got to be become an education. If we're saying we know that there's a difference between schooling and education, we know that the history of education in this country has, is actually quite industrialised. It's, mm. it's, it's a bit of a factory. It's not really looking at who you are. It's one size fits all and trying to run us along. That's, that's what's happened. It's yeah. quite different to the idea when education uh, as part of the development of medieval church that you were growing out the humanity of this person and thinking well Mm. what what how does God want to grow that person we're trying to find ways in an industrialized version of education to meet the needs of some of the most vulnerable but what does the bible say to us about the most vulnerable what does it say to us about the child that 99 versus the one I yeah, think nice, education yeah. and church, we need to reclaim the gospel in what it is that we are doing in education, that we are not being wow. wags by, uh, you know, other dynamics, interests that sometimes aren't as human as they need to be. Mm-hmm. But I do want to just move on to wrap up just on what then happens. 
Sometimes mm -hmm. all of us go through experiences that make us vulnerable. If a child is made vulnerable, if a family is made vulnerable, they're going to need additional support in, in particular ways. And so an alternative provision or what they're called as education centres have got a hugely horrible rap because over years they were used as dumping grounds for these children that certain schools yeah. didn't want. Yeah. That is yeah. not what we want. Yeah. We want a situation That's not the narrative you want, is it? Not at all. That's not what God doesn't throw away people. He he's he's redeemed the God I know about redeems all circumstances. Yeah, I don't know about you. So in terms of that, we've got to get not to a, a point group. that we as church think about it that actually this is a precious one knit together in his mother's womb, in her mm -hmm. mother's womb, and mm -hmm. wanted and desired and planned before the foundation of the earth. This child cannot be wasted and we cannot give up on what is going on there. That doesn't mean we don't have clear boundaries that we don't have consequences but it does mean that we're consistent and we're committed to being consistent in that child's life and that means that if we are going to do alternative learning reducing the social drama that goes on and helping the child build the skills the social skills as well as the academic skills so that they can go forward and really that's that's where education and belonging needs to land and and mm. we as church i am very passionate that we get to a point where we are involving ourselves in that battle because not yeah. one of these precious ones should be lost and tlg tlg is one of the one of the charities that the, the, the diocese and lent appeal is is raising the profile of and we have tlg it didn't start in london it started up north but now we have TLG transforming lives for good. It is that, isn't it? It's like it's for children who aren't coping in school. They go to a TLG center. Yeah, that's what it is. They run a number of approaches and they do mentoring in primary school and that's to intervene and build that relationship. But they also create for over for secondary school and they're thinking about doing that for primary as well. Education centers where they have between eight and 12 young people. So it's a school um, group, yeah. Small easier, group. To, easier to feel. Um, so, a small group, easier to be seen, safe, easier yeah. to be known and understood and then just connecting and rehealing. And, and what I want to say in relation to that attachment stuff I was talking about earlier, the power of love. Love mm. has the power to heal things, that consistency of love. And, you know, many of us remember you might have come from a difficult journey or situation and when you've walked into a place that has empathy and boundaries, that has a commitment to you to walk with you, that has the power to change all of your experiences. We know from the neuroscience that actually you can have been programmed a particular way. But if you are met consistently with love, mm. that has the, the power to change the synapses in our, in our brains, the connections, mm our worldview and and you know that's a hebraic part of it we we're not just rational creatures we have a world root view that sits in our heart and yeah. the love that you receive manifests from from god manifests in other humans mm. made in the image of god has huge deep and wide power to change <laughs> that's a lot i'm gonna try and wrap us up and i do want to say something for teachers as an experienced teacher myself Mm. There's sometimes that we end up looking, being asked to look at the child when mm. actually we need to be holding to account the institution, the leadership. I used to lead right. on behavior. If, if there is a child that whose needs are not getting met and you are unable to teach, take that argument to your leadership. They okay. have the responsibility to yeah. be wrapping the support around you as a professional yeah. and around yeah. that child. And yeah. it's not for you to just hold that. You need to also be held by the empathy that, you know, you were loved as well. Yeah, and that's that a, good word. A, a child may be challenging you. God sees your day mm -hmm. and knows that that child is there yeah. and, and wants that child to be loved. But you're not yeah. meant to just do that alone. And mm -hmm. so my prayer definitely would be that those who are feeling weary amongst mm -hmm. the teaching who are all have already been asked over and above what we had ever been prepared to do 
mm. and give and give every day, whether or not we get praise for it. I want to mm. bless you and thank you and let you know that God sees you yeah, and is upholding you. He is the greatest teacher and he mm. will teach you how mm. to do this. But just that if the temple is not organized in a way to make sure that it's ready to receive the lost one, then take that up and and really see it. The child is not your problem. The temple is the issue. It needs cleansing. I'm welcoming you back today to have a think about our docu-series. I've been working on in conjunction with Compassionate Communities, which is part of the Diocese of London. Compassionate Communities exists to support and equip every church across the diocese in serving their communities compassionately, the practical love of God in action. Churches across the diocese offer 1,500 ministries of compassion to the communities that they are part of, works of service and acts of justice for every Londoner to encounter the love of God in Christ. Compassionate Communities' key themes of work are caring for God's creation, mental health and isolation, refugees and asylum seekers, money, debt and food, and food insecurity, housing and homelessness, modern slavery and safer communities for all our young people. My name is the Reverend Natasha Beckles. I'm here as a third year assistant curate, which means I studied and, be, and have been ordained deacon, then priest in the Church of England. And I've been serving a mixed mode curacy, which means most of my time has been based in a parish, St. Martin's Church in Gospel Oak in Camden. But two days of my week have been given to work as a member of the Compassionate Communities team, specifically developing the safer communities for all young people theme. This theme particularly explores community safety for young people or contextual safety and considers the way in which the local church can join in with the diocese's articulated desire to become younger, safer and more diverse. And this week we're thinking about education and belonging. Today I am joined by a dear, dear friend, Rachel Clark, who it's a great, great pleasure to introduce her because she and I met many, many moons ago when she was an NQT and I was a very young school improvement consultant, actually at an Alpha course. So she is the daughter and granddaughter of a hierarchy of educators, actually. Her grandmother is the very Welsh pride and joy that is Betty Campbell, the first black head teacher of Wales, and her mother, Elaine Clark, is a highly respected head teacher in the Bren, a local area, and uh, a London head teacher. And Rachel has been a busy, busy person, apart from juggling life as being a mother and amazing <laughs> friend and partner to many people. Um, she's actually one of the core partners for the Welsh Government's funded anti-racist learning for all of their educators, which is a really exciting and, and accolade now. I know Betty Campbell, who has passed on and is in that great cloud of witnesses, will be so ridiculously proud of her. It was my privilege to meet and hang out with her too. She's a senior lecturer. Amongst that is a deputy head of a, a school I know well in Brent as well, right in the heart of some of the challenges that particular local authority has faced over many years. Rachel, thank you firstly for being here. What a welcome, what an introduction. It's my pleasure to be here, so thank you. I haven't even finished it because she's also oh an anti-racist consultant. She's worked in multiple sectors, not least the Church of England, not least the Church of England, London Diocese, not least Edmonton area, um, supporting some of the training of our priests and area sub-deans. So your, your website is called promoteequality.org. And my Twitter handle is Apex Educate. 
Well, I want it to be there because you have given so much to me and to others and to education and to the church. So limes don't drop far from trees. That's what we say. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So I wanted us to have a little time for us to reflect on the podcast, what resonated, what didn't. The insight you gave was really pertinent to some of the challenges schools face. But the thing that came through to me the most was around this idea of belonging and everybody having a place and young people reaching out and communicating in ways that we don't necessarily like and are not socially acceptable by any means. I think the other part was around this idea of judgment and the importance of of not judging and seeing things for what they are and putting in structures in place to support, not accepting behaviours that we all know are not correct and, and not right. But doing all of that with a lack of judgment is really key. It's key to building relationship. It's key to getting to know people. It's key to them trusting and developing that relationship based upon a foundation of trust as opposed to a relationship based upon the foundation of judgment. And I think that in terms of the church's role, obviously, and and being the church being placed in a wide range of communities up and down the country, that idea of judgment and that idea of reaching out to form attachment is really, really important to do. We all have, and we're all built around this hierarchy and the structures of society um, that means that we have different roles. We're still, we still got a very class-based system. And all of those hierarchies and structures can very easily lend themselves to then forming judgments on people, which blocks relationship from forming and from building, which then disrupts the trust that's there, which then means that relationships are not that strong, which then means it's more difficult for people to respond in the ways that we want to. And I think as somebody who is still a school leader, that's one of the key, the keys really to unpicking the the barriers to success for some young people who, as you picked up in the last podcast, some young people come from a various range of backgrounds and homes that have experienced a various range of challenges. And so the important thing is controlling what we can control, which is what goes on inside schools. And as leaders, what's clear structures and systems are we putting in and then following up with and on to make sure that those young people start to breathe, start to open up, start to feel like they belong. Teachers, well, education is full of judgment. We have Ofsted judging us. We have parents judging us. Anybody who's involved in education, you will have had at some point a lesson observation, a learning walk. So judgment is all around us. And I think from a biblical point of view, there's there's common sense, good judgment. You know, if I cross the road without looking where I'm going, good Mm. chance I'm going to get run over. I always think of judgment as there's positional judgment if you're asked to do a job, whether you are the judge or a lunchtime supervisor. If I've got you in the classroom looking after those kids, I'm expecting you as the adult to bring your judgment to school with you about what the child is doing in that place. And then there is judgment which is unconscious there is judgment that is is not rooted in fact or hasn't been examined in some sort of way. So which judgments can school leaders hold on to? Which ones should they be throwing away? Because we the structure of our society and particularly the structure of education is just packed out with judgment. Yeah, which is which is what I said to start off with. But I think that the latter definition or interpretation of judgment that you spoke about is one that needs to disappear as a school leader yeah we all make judgments don't we and we're all making decisions about life all of the time and as you rightfully said the education system is one that means that judgments are being made and there's lots of conversation going on at the moment about Ofsted and that role because of the negative judgment and and that very oppressive um, state of being in terms of judging and what that means and the implications of all of that. That's the that's the flawed part, if you like, the part that that really does attribute value 
differing value sets to people based upon perceived beliefs about what people can and can't do and how worthy they are to receive good and fair treatment. And I think that the conversations that are happening now in education are starting to become more reflective, less judgmental. So if we think about the structure of the formal observation, you know, three times a year, et cetera, et cetera, that's moving towards a coaching, a coaching model, the side-by-side work. It's not about whether or not you're outstanding or good or requiring improvement or inadequate. The removal of, of those terms, you know, when conducting that work alongside teachers is really, really important because we've all got things to improve with and on. So as learners, as teachers, we've got to see ourselves as learners. As leaders, we've got to see ourselves as learners because we're learning all of the time. So it's not a complete removal of judgment that needs to happen. Absolutely. I agree with you there. I think it's where the, the where judgment comes in and where it, it sort of interrupts the relationship because it's determining who gets to have things and who doesn't get to have things. Who should be deemed worthy and who shouldn't be deemed as worthy. I've never met an educator who who says outright, I don't think so-and-so should have this because they're not worth it. I haven't met that. However, what I will say is through some actions, that can still be the unintended outcome. And so we've got to be really mindful over saying what we do and doing what we say and making sure that as leaders, we're going back to and having conversations with teachers, with practitioners, just to support them to see for themselves how aligned their words are with their actions for the best of young people. Because it's really easy to talk, oh, well, this this family doesn't really care, or that one doesn't really understand, and so on and so forth. So as a teacher, what can I do? But actually, we've got a professional responsibility. We've gone into this occupation for a reason. For most people, I think it's still a calling. It's still a vocational calling um, that's that's prompted and motivated us to go into the profession. For some, it's not a vocation. It's seen as a job and that's fine too. But at the end of the day, we've got a professional responsibility to carry out. And we've got to do it carefully to make sure that everybody gets what they deserve, particularly the most vulnerable in society. Thank you so much for clarifying that, because I think, um, you know, it's it's just so important that people understand where it is. We, we are in the organisation and institution that we are and judgment mm-hmm. is there on some level. And it's great to see that um, we are moving away from just labelling staff and schools in that way. Mm-hmm. But somehow we've ended up still labelling children in particular ways. And I, why is it? How is it? Why are we where we are in schools for young people, for children, you know, who are some of whom are openly at risk? You know, we know that there are challenges going on for their families, but others who have unseen vulnerabilities. And as we learned from the COVID pandemic, all of us have unseen vulnerabilities on on some level. How is it that schools and education ended up in this situation? Because I don't think it was made for everybody to actually do well. Mm. I think if you think about the purpose of education, it was to prepare the country for a workforce to be compliant. Mm. Um, If we think about the options that, that were had previously with young people leaving or having the option to leave school, Um, and go into the world of work really young as children you know and then that slow change over a period of time but those structures still remain and so judgments are still happening and young people get lost in the mix of data in the mix of conversations in the mix of pressure and the most vulnerable are the ones who bear the brunt of that and lose the most However, they've got the least to be able to lose as a starting point. So it then means that their deficit is added to disproportionately. It might well mean they might have a different resilience set in order to withstand that deficit even more, which could then land them in in a further vulnerable situation. So it then becomes a vicious cycle. I think the way forward 
again, is through that structure. It's through that clarity. It's through relationship. It's through having open and honest conversations, but not with the not with judgment there, not with that I'm better than you judgment there. And I think once we start to to integrate that as leaders more and more within the schools that we work in, the better off the young people will be. But we're there because the, the system is not set up for everybody to win. We know disproportionately that if you are from Black Caribbean backgrounds and heritage, if you're from a white Irish traveller, gypsy or Roma heritage, the outcomes are the lowest. We know that. And there's a reason for that. It comes down to expectations, assumptions, and again, value and worth. And I think with a workforce that is a predominantly white workforce that has absorbed lots and lots of messages about value, worth and belonging through society, not just within education, I think that has a huge impact on interactions that are carried out and expectations that teachers and leaders have of children from particular communities. And I think the structures are not in place to counteract society's ills, if you like. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. And some would say that actually, you know, they were never set up to undermine that process. They're, they're, They're set up to intensify those or, or, or reaffirm some of those messages and and expectations and that you know there's implicit cultural biases there's implicit class biases that combine together and result with um, outcomes I can remember working as a youth worker 25 years ago don't ask me how that happened working in areas like Latimer in London and white working class communities where you know people were going to collect um, GCSE results that were F's and G's and you know just one or two GCSEs and the community had accepted that and what had been accepting that for generations um, not feeling that the education system was for them. I can remember working in Broadwater Farm. Um, I started out as when I started out as the inclusion manager in Senko and sitting with a woman who in tears was telling me that her brother had left that same school, not being able to read and how that has shaped his life. And she was sat there as a the mother of her own child fighting, wanting as a white working class person from that community, wanting better for her children. And it broke my heart that we can have schools that write off whole communities because there isn't the expectation there isn't the drive there isn't the even the ability to expect or have some judgment that looks at that child in a positive way looks at that community in a positive way and I I found I was I felt really angry about the fact that the the generational sin that is then poured into that community not because they're doing anything wrong, but because the community around them and the expectations that the system is putting in there um, mean that that community fail. So, uh, you know, those those are experiences from 10 years ago, 25 years ago. And are- the experience moving forward, because until we have people in positions of leadership who have real experience based upon themselves or a very close family member or friends, there is such a disconnect of understanding. And so that drive, that relentless sort of fervour to genuinely think and say, this is not happening. It's not there. It's We don't have that in abundance. And it's not coming from a place of obvious, intentional, conscious disapproval, but it's still coming from a place of negative judgment. It's definitely a shadow side that's there and the shadow side builds up no matter what. That's your basic leadership understanding. Yeah, completely. And so it is about, if we think about school leaders and where they live and where they work. Where often, they come from, what their experience often, with education was. So often, not always, but often, people do not live where they lead. Mm. And people don't have family members who've experienced what family members within that school community have. And I'm saying that as somebody who does not live where I lead. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm so conscious and aware of part of my story 
part of my family's story and therefore part of my story. Oh. You know? and, I, and I think it's, it's important to not necessarily have that connection firsthand, but to go and find out, to develop that relationship. And that goes right back to what I said at the beginning. It is about relationship. It's about understanding, developing that understanding through the building of relationship and the building of trust. Without that, things will be done to people. People will be spoken for and spoken at, but not spoken with, not not spoken with to be heard mm. and for things to be reshaped potentially if, if you know if there is the possibility of that. This this aspect of judgment is so important because if you haven't had firsthand experience of what your school community and families have had firsthand experience of, if you don't know through family connections or friendship connections or anybody in your social like close circle, if you don't know through them about what the, the experiences really are for people in, in your school, in terms of the families that, that, that we serve, how can you do it justice? If you're not going to be thinking, I've got to learn and need to go and find out. It's okay not to know. In my mind, it's not okay to then not go and find out, not go out and actively build that relationship. That is where school leaders, I think, fall down. I think not knowing is fine, but it's just not okay to acknowledge that you don't know and then do nothing about it. You've got you've to act on it. And I think school leaders, I would say, have more of a duty to do that than classroom teachers. Even though classroom teachers are, you know, the people who see the children and young people far more frequently and far more often, but it's school leaders who set the tone. Yeah, you make it a problem or you make it acceptable. That's it. That's it. So, so through doing and through acting and through whatever, if it's on my agenda as a school leader, then it's going to hit all teachers. Mm-hmm. That's far more impactful than one teacher thinking, okay, it's important I get to know. Yeah, it is important teachers get to know as well, but it has to be, it has to come from the top. It has to be led. It has to be directed. And I think that that's the, that's the situation more and more. So yes, it's important for us to see a variety of leaders with a variety from a variety of backgrounds in post. It is really important, but you know, that what the, the data of our workforce states and shows us is that that's not statistically going to be possible ever. Mm-hmm. Or really really long time fine not a problem we're in a white majority country that's not a problem at all so then what so then what needs to happen is we all need to get to know our school communities really really well build that relationship not with one portion but across all portions of our school community cutting across as you were talking about families from a range of backgrounds both in terms of economic bracket and in terms of racialized identity really really important for that understanding to be there so is there anything what should we be doing what is it about our education system our curriculum or potentially our workforce that creates a situation or if we want to be more positive what could we be doing to fix it that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think it's I think it's through learning. The problem is, as teachers are learning, the kids don't get another chance. So I think we have to have a really honest conversation and we say, right, we're going to spend a really concerted amount of time learning. And that means that kids will miss out. Our kids won't get what they need. But we're going to take that on the chin and we're going to catch them up with stuff later on down the line. What happens is conversations are had, the realities are not shared. Unpick that, what do you mean? And then we're surprised that we're still getting the same thing. So, you know, we want to have, we want to have real high quality outcomes and standards achieved, right? We want a workforce that's equipped for all of that, even though we know what retention rates are like, even though we know people are leaving teaching left, right and centre, and there are lots of routes into the profession now uh, where you can train on the job, which means that the skill set is not going to be as strong as it was before, right? Coming Or in. even the philosophy. Sometimes the philosophy of education is just what do you believe education right. is for? 
Right. And so what I'm saying is that we just have to have an honest conversation about the cost of all of that, the cost to children's education. But we're not. We're saying this is the context of teaching. This is the context of the workforce. This is the context of the profession. And we're still going to get all these high standards and we're still going to whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's the drive for all of that and that pressure that means that we're not open and honest about our starting points, about what we really do understand, where we really need to go next and the things that we're going to put into place to get there. That's partially down to the monitoring, you know, from government. And I know the Welsh version of Ofsted, Estyn, are not like Ofsted to the same extent at all. They're having better conversations with schools in Wales. Yeah, like the whole judgment thing, it's 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 just different. I think it's diff- it's really difficult for head teachers, particularly in England, who have the government saying one thing, Ofsted saying a very similar thing but in hearts knowing it's not the right thing to do. Uh And it's, then it comes down to how brave you are. Courage is a a big thing here in education. It's all there. Yes, it is. Curriculum. Anything you got to say about the curriculum? I think it's about the lens through which any curriculum is drafted. Who does it represent? How does it represent them? And who benefits from learning that? That's it. They're the questions that need to be asked for for all subjects. Often, again, just like the workforce, the wide range of of curriculum writers is not there. Voices are obscured, not included. And that means that that full understanding of self can't be formed if if we've got a skewed picture um, of what we're learning about. So I think it's important for young people to see and understand about themselves who they are where they fit into the local community and how they're connected to the global community this is not about putting everybody into their individual box it's actually to identify yeah what are our individual strengths what makes me me what makes you you what are the commonalities between why and how are we all here Mm-hmm. And what for the wider world do we have? You know, if we're going to really, really grow young people within this culture of belonging, then we've got to do things a bit differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <In> my esteemed <laughs> opinion. <laughs> I want to get to the bottom end. We've talked a bit about workforce. We've talked a bit about curriculum, the systems of it. Um, I was having a conversation with a head and a youth leader of a, um, working in a Christian um, youth group. And they were talking about some of the situations that they're seeing where, you know, schools are managing to stay. We've got zero exclusions, but the level of managed moves and the lack of parental voice in those circumstances is a significant issue. One person was also talking about, you know, how the safeguarding situations that are going on, that there's almost the leaders are stretching themselves to kind of protect teachers from certain stuff and therefore protecting teachers from the the realities of the stories that some of their kids are coming from just to help their teachers cope and stay focused on these outcomes that they need to um, achieve. How are these circumstances they don't honor god it doesn't help people but these are the realities that people are facing any thoughts yeah because we're in this this system of judgment for the for the greater ill Mm. in my opinion it still means something to authoritative bodies that make decisions about good and bad and who's doing the right thing and, and who's not who who stays open and who's shut down It's the privatisation of education through the back door. And like any revamp of of any sort of system, if we think about those who miss miss out and lose out and lose the most, it will be people from the communities we've already spoken about. The thing is, we don't have representation in government, both of opinion and also with that connection. Experience. Yeah to experience and also to various economic brackets and sets 
And so this idea of being able to cook a meal for 30 pence and and these real horrid, horrid stories that we're hearing coming out demonstrates such a lack of empathy, such a lack of care and poor leadership in my mind. And it just may, it's making the gaps grow. And so the young people who will be excluded, the first, moved on the most, et cetera, et cetera, will be those from the most vulnerable communities. This is a societal issue. It's not one for education alone. It needs joined up thinking. It needs leaders around the table saying enough is enough. What are we going to do to work together? It's not about ego. It's not about, you know, who gets to be celebrated. But we're in crisis mode, I would argue. I, I would agree with you, but I suppose I'm going to take it to that point that that's at that macro level where people who have power sitting at the table, you know, what as leaders, as teachers, should we be doing for white working class mum who's fighting, fighting bells and hooks to keep her son from being excluded um, he he apparently is not going to be excluded. This is just as one ex- exemplar. He's going to be managed, moved somewhere else. And the trauma that that creates, it, it's, I see a lot of women on the ground. I see, you know, mm-hmm. Asian mother with a child with a learning difficulty, not getting mm-hmm. the right Senko support. And mm-hmm. then her child being excluded from nursery or labeled mm-hmm. from nursery in those situations. Mm-hmm. It, there's, there's a range of people being, there's a lot of mothers at the bottom of it. And mm-hmm. I will bring this to, you know, we very much have this image of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her son. And how it is that we ensure that, you know, we've got Annas and we've got Elizabeths who are, we've got Simeons, all of these people who are ready with open arms to receive these children into the temple that Mm. was built for these children. It's what breaks my heart is that sometimes people don't get, if there's no children, there's no job. Mm. You know, there's no point to education if they are not. So. If you really want to strip it back, we're in a capitalist society. So it ultimately comes down to money. It comes down to school budgets. It comes down to the lack of funding, mm. the, the the difficult hurdles that are being put into place structurally to make it harder for schools and for leaders to access additional support. And And I think it can be incredibly difficult. What can leaders do? I think be banging on doors and and thinking we're going to have to start thinking outside of the box a little bit more. I think that's what we have to do. We have to think about using the staff who we have in slightly different ways in order to maximise the the amount we can give for families who will need it increasingly given our current um, social situation and state. We're in a cost of living crisis. So everybody's under a lot more pressure. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to consider what that means for families and what that means for family support. I'm not talking about schools becoming some sort of social advocacy space, but what I am saying is if we don't get it right with the families, then we can't get to the children. So it's a mixture of everything, but it comes down to money. And so if you are in a deficit as a school, yeah, I hear you. If there's no children, there is no job anyway. Mm. But how do you educate everybody in that deficit when you know that you need to spend a little bit more to provide additional support for some? Yeah, I think they're real pressures. And it will just have to come through thinking creatively because there's not going to be loads of money tomorrow, you know. And I think if we start talking to families, start helping them feel as if we are there to listen, we genuinely want to listen not to judge but so we understand better in order to think differently about how we can support I think that's that's what we have to do I want to go back and let us end on this word around courage I I've now left education as a senior leader I'm now a clergy person but one of the things was our curriculum ended up being changed quite significantly And in terms of pedagogy, I'm not sure how much it matched with what people's ideas as to the best way to help children learn. 
has te have teachers, educators lost the courage of and the conviction of our profession? You know, are we now just cowering in the corner and, and just accepting whatever um, the government says? Are we just firefighting every which way we can? You know, I, I, I want to find some way to uplift these people that I was so proud to be part of, you know, yeah. and saw beautiful work and, you know, calling to priesthood came through vocation in teaching. And it's mm. so my it, there is a deep passion and support for teachers that are here and I think I know that both of us have that we can be talking about leaders and being challenging in that but the well-being of teachers matters because mm. these people are holding um the psychologies of our children yeah what does yeah. courage look like in educators these days I think it depends on what day of the week it is <laughs> <laughs> and where where the term is I think courage is understand learning about your your children which is what most teachers do really well understanding them making connections as leaders I think courage is, is changing I think courage is now becoming more about standing up and being really clear about what is being stood for and I think that's happened that shift has happened particularly in the last few months you know you feel like, so I feel so yeah people are speaking out a lot more and people just give a little context what's been going on the last few months in your mind that that demonstrates that well I think the the death of the head teacher I think that sparked and has rightfully sparked lots of questions over the role of Ofsted and the success of that etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think that's actually provided people with that courage to say I will speak out against my own experience of of Ofsted I will speak out against against what this system is like and the limitations as a school leader of of the system as it stands and and I think that's really important to to harness I guess and and keep reflecting on and think about what is it that you're about and does it matter if someone else comes in to question you about your core principles your core priorities how how strong will you be with that conviction over moving your school forward? And 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 I think leaders know their schools the best. It's yeah. about having that courage to stand up and shout about what we do. Rachel, I want to thank you for taking some time with us just to explore the underlying kind of currents and trends and issues that are there. I hope this has been a useful podcast for all those that have an opportunity to listen to it it was an absolute privilege to um, go down memory lane and explore this again thanks thank again so no worries thank you so much for having me this was episode two of this series on interrupting serious youth violence episode three will focus on power and privilege and will feature an interview with leroy logan ex-british police officer and one of the founding members and the first chairs one of the first chairs of the black police association here in the uk compassionate communities is part of the diocese of london we exist to support and serve every church across the diocese in serving their communities compassionately, the practical love of God in action. Churches across the diocese offer 1,500 ministries of compassion to the communities that they are part of, works of service and acts of justice for every Londoner to encounter the love of God in Christ. Our key themes of work are caring for God's creation, mental health and isolation, refugees and asylum seekers, money, debt and food insecurity, housing and homelessness, safer communities for all young people and modern slavery. Please do check us out on the website. We can be found at compassionatecommunitieslondon.org.uk. That's compassionatecommunitieslondon.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchin for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. 
If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.